This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome, everyone. So I will start with a question directed to Carol Marchetto. And the question is the following. In the data you shared from the Eichler lab, the African human population has a higher degree of heterozygosity than the non-African human population. Would you also hypothesize that increased line one activity is a possible source of intraspecies differences in human genomic diversity, given your proposal for the other great apes? Um, I guess the answer will be yes, we need to test that. Uh, but um, the, you also have to think that with, uh, with some, of the, some of the non-human primates, especially uh, some of the chimps uh, populations, there's also that there's also a lot of human influence on how the selection has been happening. Um, so I guess uh, some, 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 you need to be careful when, uh, um, when uh, making those um, assumptions. Um, but definitely the, the, the good thing is that we have uh, uh, now uh, genomic tools that uh, allows for, for um, investigation of uh, genomic se uh, uh, um, sequencing, as well as um, uh, line sequencing, which is a little bit, it's slightly more complicated than uh, um, genome sequencing, because as you can imagine, we have 20%, uh, percent, some estimates go up to 50% of uh, sequences. Um, of, of our genome can can have pieces of, of line one uh, transposons in general. So um, more uh, sequencing on non-human primates have to happen. And currently uh, we don't have that much uh, access of, uh, um, of, of blood and material. So uh, I think uh, some of uh, research community that study non-human primates is um, um, wishing to have a little bit more um, access to 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 genome to new genomes from from uh, from non-human primates. Thank you, thank you, Carol. Uh, the next question is to Joe, Joseph Hesia. Although there is no known benefit of phytanic acid, it seems there may be an evolutionary drive to maintain moderate levels of it, at least in primates, as measured in RBCs. Is there any biological process you hypothesize it could be important for? Alternatively, could phytanic acid be an important nutrient for gut microbes? Oh, well, thank you for the, the question. And also uh, thank everyone for, uh, uh, for the invitation to, uh, to speak here. Uh, my understanding, and this is, comes from a more of a medical genetics background, is that uh, there's a disease called adult Refsum disease where individuals who have this disease, have an inability to, um, to break down uh, you know, phytanic acid, as discussed in the, uh, in the video. And there's no known uh, you know, biological function of you know, phytanic acid that's essential for human life. You can have a, a vegan diet and essentially have uh, you know, almost minuscule amounts of this uh, exposure in your system, and they have no adverse effects. So that would be I would just change the question a little bit and say that I don't believe that there's anything beneficial. Now, there is uh, a little bit of a question about this 
FIH gene. It, has, it's, it encodes an enzyme called phytonol-CoA hydroxylase, which is involved in the metabolism of phytanic acid. But what's intriguing about that particular enzyme for people in the field is that it's present you know, even uh, in diverse uh, organisms down to, say, yeast. And at that particular point in time, you'd say, why would yeast need to actually break down phytanic acid? There seems to be no exposure in their diet. So the thought is that there was, um, you know, a, a new function that was that, that that particular enzyme can have multiple functions in the body, um, you know, and it actually evolved from a uh, from a you know ancestral form that may have had a different purpose that was required for the health of those individuals. And I would just, uh, you know, perhaps end up saying that, you know, phytanic acid itself does act as a agonist to a number of transcription factors. So it does stimulate, you know, different gene expression profiles, but in and of itself, I don't see it as essential for human life, but I see it as a, a marker of hindgut fermentation that is diminished in the human species relative to the great apes. Thank you very much. The next question is for Ajit Larki. Uh, can you speculate as to why humans may have lost Siglec 16 and evolved expression of Siglec 11 in the brain? Um, that's a difficult question. You don't know when exactly this happened and what exactly caused it to happen. We can say that there was a lot of gene conversion in Siglec 11 and 16. Maybe it's going to be a promoter change in some way. And then, so 11 and 16 got recruited to the microglia where they interact with polysialic acid, which is an important molecule for, for brain plasticity. So there's some theories about what might have happened there. And that's, that's the second question is, why, why, why did you start losing 16? We don't know that either. Uh, clearly, the majority of humans don't have 16. And I really don't have an answer to it. It's, it's a puzzle, but here's the events that occurred uniquely in humans, and fixed in all humans. So Much more work to be done. Yes. Thank you, Rajiv. And uh, the next question is to Jim Rilling. Uh, is there plasticity or variation in arcuate fasciculus connectivity based on human environments? For example, people who cannot speak or were raised in environments where they were never exposed to speech or were raised in multilingual families or countries, which is the majority of the population on the planet. Um, yeah, hi everybody. Um, what an interesting question. Um, that would be something that would be great to explore further. I, I think, you know, most of these data come from wealthy populations where people have access to uh, MRI scanners. And unfortunately, that's that's true for probably all of cognitive neuroscience, that we have a, a bias towards uh, participants that come from, you know, wealthy, rich countries. So it would be nice to get more data from, from other populations. Um, there are um, some cases of, you know, children with uh, global developmental delay where uh, it has not been possible to um, identify the arctic fasciculus pathway. Um, and so that's the only case I know of where, you know, people have, have looked at kind of um, variation in this, you know, in a serious way. But um, I like that idea a lot. Um, and I think it's, it's something that should be pursued in the future. Thanks very much. Uh, the next question is for Nisi Varki. Are there any species in which cancer of all kinds is very uncommon or even not known? I don't know if there, I mean, 
the can lymphomas and sarcomas do arise in a lot of different species as they age and there are some species like the tasmanian devil that has a specific kind of cancer and then the 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 naked mole rat as well um but i think i'm not sure if any species while well, they don't have a lot of species don't have cancer they will have benign tumors of various organs um usually smooth muscle or something but cancer as such where you have the you know infiltration and metastasis actually is only in humans um really and that was the point of the talk really thanks very much next question is for jim o'connell honey is highly valued and consumed by the hudza can you talk how age and sex relates to the collecting and sharing of honey yes um Honey collection is, first of all, it's a seasonal activity. Um, secondly, it's it's usually collected by either by single adult men or by men acting in concert with their uh, spouses and family members. Men often complain that uh, if they have all if they have all teenage daughters, they prefer to have at least one teenage boy to actually do the collecting since it uh, has a certain amount of risk associated with it. Um, as far as sharing is concerned, there's an enormous amount of consumption of honey at the point of acquisition. Uh, when it comes back to camp, um, if people have acquired a, a substantial amount of honey, they do two things. One is to sequester or hide the amount of honey, that some portion of the amount of honey that they brought back and leave a relatively smaller fraction out for general consumption. So it's a, and there's an interesting little dance associated with this. Have I answered the question? I think so. I think we, 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 you know, that brings us deep into the realm of um, thinking about others and what Dietrich was talking about, <laughs> you know, predictions and so forth. Uh, the next question is for Dietrich. Uh, what is the time scale for the biocultural feedback loop you describe? Ah, well, um, I'm trying to think what exactly that uh, that means. Um, but uh, you could say that this is uh, something that you can uh, observe in some form in primates. This is where the, the, the model comes from, uh, is comparative studies across humans and non-human primates in which... Uh, uh, things like uh, lifespan and brain size and diet are related to each other. Uh, and so this is a kind of thing that can have been happening for many millions of years uh, and has happened intermittently over the course of, of human evolution, as I suggested in, in my talk. Uh, so if you wanted to, you know, kind of raise specifically the, uh, uh, the technological niche, uh, you might take it as far back as you think you have something that qualifies as technology. Um, which, you know, the earliest stone tools, you know, three and a half million years ago, maybe or maybe not, those would be considered to be technology by some. Uh, the old one tools, you know, a million years later, uh, uh, would they be technology? Maybe, maybe not. But so certainly, you know, as you have these more and more complex behavioral systems, when you're talking about hafted technologies in which people are using fire to produce multi-component mastics to put on handles and all this kind of stuff, that's a technological system. And so you could talk about these feedbacks uh, really being in place in, in some instances. And so I would say millions of years, uh, you know, anywhere you're talking about this 
uh, co-evolutionary process between behavior and brain size. Thank you. Uh, next question is for Rafael Nunez. Human numerical ability depends on enculturation, training, and technologies. To what extent have researchers tried to recreate that, recreate that in non-human primates? In particular, can we think of the involved training phases and experimental setups in primate studies as performing these functions? Yeah, well, what I was trying to say in my talk is that it looks like the mechanisms are quite different. Um, so I was like trying to play with a toy of saying when we can we can teach, you know, let's say macaques to walk on, on stilts or ride a bicycle. So these are those are humanly concocted technologies and inventions. And then we can try to see how other species may, you know, make manifest some kind of behaviors. The question is, evolutionary speaking, what sense, uh, what kind of you know, meaning we can get from the from those results if we, what we're doing is to put these animals in a humanly concocted environment. Now, what I was trying to show is that uh, one important aspect that is missing apparently in non-human uh, species is symbolic reference. So this capacity of trying to extract some property but then refer to this property in a symbolic way. And that, um, as I was trying to show also in my talk, is not just directly coming straight from language. So many, many hundreds of languages around the world uh, do not have exact quantification as a, as a, as a trait. So therefore you need uh, all these cultural, social historic development of preoccupation for trying to, you know, trying to come up with a, a, a quantification when needed. And that I think is inserted in what uh, Dietrich was trying to explain. Think it's a long, long, long process. So that seems to be entirely different than training animals with a technique of associative learning to try to get, you know, some kind of proportions of 80% of trials of success and so on. But whatever they're doing seems to be generally different in nature. Thank you very much. The next question is directed at, at uh, Polly Wiesner, who um, has lost access to the internet, but I have her answer, so I will read her answer for everyone. The question is, you mentioned cooperative breeding as a possible scaffold for intergroup ties. If we consider how many societies now utilize systems and institutions, for example, daycare, school systems, as means of raising young, what impact do you think this might have on social ties and intergroup coalitionary aggression or cooperation? She answers, I think this depends very much on the quality of the institution and if they promote understanding, empathy and altruistic behavior. Although, quite honestly, kids are amazing at doing this by themselves, even if not encouraged to do so. I would worry more about digital communication as the main means of communication. This is very pertinent in a time of school by Zoom, kindergarten by Zoom. Uh, we'll go to round two. I'll keep questions directed to me for the end. Uh, a question for Carol Marchetto. Would you expect to find more regulation of line one in the non-human great apes, which exhibit lower degrees of heterozygosities like bonobos? I think you showed the data for that, but um, we so so in 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 the lab, we don't see it. Um, in the lab, we don't see it, but uh, it's it's not unlikely that you will be able to you might be able to see uh, uh, might be able to have different populations that have different behaviors. Uh, so that's why I think it's important to continue 
uh, work on 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 non-human primates, especially uh, great apes, and uh, possibly get more um, a variety of cell lines from different individuals. And we can now um, obtain those reprogrammed lines from blood, uh, which means uh, it's minimally invasive, and we might be able to get uh, samples from um, individuals that are in the wild. That would be amazing if possible. So we can test um, in wild populations how how is that uh, um, how transposon uh, uh, is playing a role, or if 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 there will be difference. But in in the experiments that we did, we uh, see that uh, non-human primates have increased levels of uh, uh, line elements, not only transposon itself, the actual jumping, it's happening more often because we have, we can culture those cells. Um, but also when we look at the, uh, what the genetic that has been published, uh, we can also see increased evidence of more elements that are present in the genome, which indicates more jumping have occurred in non-human primates, uh, the chimpanzees compared to humans. Um, bonobo genome, it's not um, as well annotated to the point that it's harder to detect um, uh, uh, line elements at this stage, but uh, the bonobo genome is getting uh, more and more well annotated. So it will be possible to uh, compare, to look at, at, at the, the genomes of, of bonobos soon, hopefully too. Thank you. Okay. Next question is for Joe Hesia again. I found the results from Catherine Milton's study fascinating, characterizing the comparatively larger small intestine and smaller large intestine in humans compared to other apes. As the species of gut bacteria that inhabit the small intestine are genetically and functionally very different from those that inhabit the large intestine, I was wondering if there was any idea of the evolutionary relationship between the species of bacteria colonizing the gut and the changing size of the intestines, a classic chicken and egg problem. Now, that is a very interesting and insightful question. I, I can say that I, I don't have a good answer for it. I think it would be a great research project, especially when you'd have to think about differences between captive and, and non-captive and non-captive non-human primates, as other speakers have brought up. Um, I, I can say in some unpublished work that was uh, hopefully we'll be able to submit soon that we actually looked at phytanic acid levels also in uh, red blood cells from uh, red howler monkeys, and I think Duke Langers. And we saw them, uh, they, they were dramatically elevated relative to all the other species that we looked at. And those are known to be uh, a class, a classic uh, uh, gut fermentation. So I think that's interesting, but the, actually figuring out their, their microbiomes would be of great interest. So uh, great question. If I may add to that, it's uh, something I learned from Ajit, actually, that the, you know, the, what we usually talk, call the microbiome is mostly the hind gut. Collecting from the small intestine is a much more difficult endeavor. And so the, there's a big bias in the current microbiome uh, literature that it's really concentrating on essentially fecal samples, which do not necessarily reflect what's happening further up in the small intestine. In fact, I have a question for Ajit here. Um, if the intracellular portion of SIGLEX is required for the signaling cascades that lead to inflammatory up or down regulation, what is the purpose of a secreted SIGLEX? 
That's a very good question. We have no idea. One idea would be that it would it would be a it would bind to the ligand and block block another action of some kind. So in other words, those secreted exosomes came out and bound to polysialic acid nearby to prevent the binding of BDNF or something else too. It's a competitive reaction. So a modifier of some kind. Mod, uh, sort of mo- modulator. And that's something that D- D- Dylan Chen is continuing to study now. Thank you. Uh, this question is for Jim Rilling. Have any non-linguistic functions of the arcuate fasciculus been described? Are there ways to probe higher order human cognition that aren't language dependent? Uh, have any non-linguistic functions in the arcuate fasciculus been described? Um, you know, not to my knowledge. Um, although I, I can't be sure about that for sure, but I, I, I have uh, seen it presented as mostly as specialized for linguistic functions. I mean, I can't, I, I, you could try to rephrase it and ask, what does it do in a chimpanzee? Well, it's also lateralized. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's that's uh, interesting to think about what what functions does the arcuate fasciculus have in, in non-human primates and. I mean, we have to think about it. it's um, really connecting auditory cortex and the temporal lobe to the inferior frontal gyrus. So it, it's carrying auditory information um, forward to the frontal lobe. And within the inferior frontal gyrus, we know that in both monkeys and humans, um, that that's a region that's in, involved in sound sequence processing, so processing the sequences of sound. So it, it could be involved in, for example, processing um, vocalizations from, uh, you know, species-specific vocalizations and the sequences of sounds in those vocalizations. Um, but I actually think a, a even more interesting possibility is that it's involved in uh, vocal learning. Um, so much as, you know, I talked about there's this idea that it's important for uh, human children learning how to produce phonemes through imitation. Um, it could also be involved in, in young um, non-human primates learning how to vocalize. The, the only problem with that um, explanation is that a lot of those vocalizations are, uh, are innate um, and um, and therefore they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be learned. Um, but especially in chimps, it, it seems like there's some, some evidence for uh, vocal learning now as well. So for example, there, you know, different communities of chimpanzees have um, slightly different types of pant boots. And so, but every, every, you know, individual within that community has the same type of pant hoot, but that differs from an adjacent community um, so that implies some degree of, of vocal learning, I think. And um, also, I mean, um, there's now some evidence that neurons within the inferior frontal cortex fire before monkeys vocalize. So, um, you know, which was surprising to me because if you lesion broke this area, monkeys can still vocalize, <laughs> which um, made it seem like that that was mediated by non-cortical limbic system structures, but now there's also some evidence of, you know, for, for that the cortex may be involved, I think. So I think it may actually be involved in um, vocal learning um, in addition to maybe this sound sequence processing. 
Thank you very much. I have another question for Nisi, Nisi Varki. Uh, are there differences in the incidence of human carcinomas in developed versus less developed countries, richer, weird societies versus societies with much less weird people, urban well, versus rural? Right. I mean, there are a few differences have been noted in that the less developed societies will develop carcinomas, say, of the cervix because, you know, of hygiene, hygiene hypothesis reasons, uh, carcinoma of the cervix, and then people who chew the betel nut and hold it in their mouth, they will develop more of the squamous carcinomas. Um, and I mean, but I guess you can see that in the developed countries as well, where people chew tobacco and keep a wad in their mouth as well. So I think it de depends on the kind of cancers that develop. Um, there may be differences between developed and non-developed, but yeah. Thank you very much. Um, we have another question for Polly Wiesner. You mentioned how the anger dehumanize the enemies during times of war and then ritually share food as a peace compensation in times of peace to rehumanize them. Seeing that so much psychological research suggests that dehumanization is often cyclical in that dehumanized groups will often dehumanize those who target them. I find this idea of rehumanizing to be, of particu to be particularly fascinating. Could you perhaps explain what exactly is being done psychologically or symbolically when it comes to rehumanizing the enemy amongst the anger? Polly answers, one reason for rehumanization is because the clients who fight are usually neighbors and intermarry and cooperate in many ways. The dehumanization comes in times of rage, but the fundamental ties uh, the, the fundamental ties there for rehumanization have been well established. This is not true when you humanize someone you do not know. So I think she addresses the importance of a, a pre-existing, very profound relationship between the group, which of course at a planetary level in the age of, uh, you know, hit by missiles so forth is not the case anymore. Uh, we have another question for Jim O'Connell. Menopause has been described in very few other mammalian species, for example, killer whales. What are the similarities and differences in selective factors that might have led to menopause in other non-human mammals? Um, I don't think that, that uh, I'd, I'd refer, defer to my uh, colleague, Kristen Hawks, to answer the question in more detail. But to my knowledge, I don't think there's much uh, serious effort uh, to explain uh, menopause in cetaceans, for example. Uh, there may be, but I'm not aware of it. Thank you. The next question for Dietrich Stout. Do you have any thoughts about how our current technological niche may shape our brains and bodies and what this might mean for future technological development? So which loop are we in? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to understand the past and, you know, variable success and predicting the future, I think, is uh, uh, is is probably uh, uh, beyond me. Um, but, uh, you know, there's. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure uh, that I could uh, come up with a, uh, a good answer for that. I mean, I think that, 
we currently have uh, a nervous system that's very highly uh, plastic. That's one of the sort of uh, products of this, uh, this history of, of uh, using this technological niche to adapt to a lot of different circumstances and learning different things. And that's always been uh, the case, you know, for the past hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Uh, and as the human brain has gotten larger, this, the, the, uh, the developmental process has become more important. So we get wire up our brains for what they need to do. So, I mean, I, I think that uh, I, I don't imagine that uh, uh, technological change is being severely constrained by the structure of the human brain such that you would be thinking about a lot of selective pressure for changes to our nervous system at this point. Um, whereas I think a lot of the story is going on with the, the technological evolution and it's sort of hyper unstable complexity uh, right now, um, which of course, if you were to predict something, it might be collapsed. So which then would be very interesting selectively, um, but hopefully that won't be the case. If, if I might, may add an add-on question, uh, do you think that the effect might actually much be, be much more pronounced in the, in, in the social realm than rather, rather than in the technological realm itself for, in terms of consequences of you know, uh, technology that is 24 seven and blue light and no, no physical contact and everything via technology. Yeah, well, certainly we can see that it's, it's affecting institutions and, uh, and social networks. Uh, and if we wanted to try to, uh, uh, to bring that back around to technology, then the, yes, it could have impacts on, uh, processes of, of innovation and adoption, uh, uh, because those are very much tied to uh, social institutions. Um, but, you know, uh, apart from that, there are very major, obvious uh, health effects of, uh, you know, particularly it's come up before the digital technologies that we're using for, for communication in the way that that's uh, uh, changing the, uh, uh, the formation of these uh, uh, social groups and people's affiliation with each other. Um, so, yeah, not necessarily directly on technology, but certainly on, uh, on human health and well-being. Like having symposia, symposia with each of us being a little square on a screen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got a question for Rafael Nunez here. Um, could you speak a bit about the ontogenetic development of quantical abilities? At what stages and how do these abilities develop? Can we place the number abilities of non-human primates along the human development spectrum? Well, thanks for the question. Well, I think before answering that question, I think we, we need to put in, in perspective the fact that we live in a society uh, which where numbers are ubiquitous. So everything, you, you grab your cell phone and then it will have literally hundreds of measurements of temperature, humidity, the Dow Jones and so on and so forth. So um, that accompanied with the idea that numbers and arithmetic systems and mathematics sort of are out there somehow, uh, sort of a platonic view that the, the mathematical truths that are supporting science and so on, they are out there. Um, it forces to the idea that since things are there, now we have to look at how other animals or uh, how kids learn it and so on and acquire it. Uh, what we forget is that this is a these are recent inventions. So probably th until the you know the place to send, there were no known exact quantification as we know uh, so far. And um, and even if we get into the the Holocene, we have really very few um, 
few pieces of, of data saying there was exact quantification. In fact, uh, as I was trying to show with the data in the Aboriginal Australia and so on, uh, a piece of the earth that has been inhabited by humans for at least 45,000 years, 13 different linguistic families for, for 45,000 years um, never came up with, with exact quantification to count beyond the subitizing range. So that has been in the big picture of things, the nature of quantification in humans. So, uh, you know, something that we invented late um, with the invention of big cities, all of a sudden you start to have keep track of, of food that you don't need immediately. So you have stocks, so then you need accounting and so on and so forth. Fast forward, you write, you, you know, invent uh, writing, fast forward, you invent printing, fast forward a little more. You have other methods for keeping track. And then we have all the talks we heard today based in one way or another in a very complicated way of measurements and numbers and mathematical formulations. So the, the question is, when is it that kids learn this? Well, just take a kid and put it in different moments of the history of humanity and different things will happen. So it is known that kids can learn like, for example, counting routine when they are immersed in a culture that uh, where you have parents and caregivers telling stories and with pages and so on with uh, moving along with counting. So those things could be, um, could be learned and at very early ages. However, uh, the counting routine and the notion of cardinality and number, it takes a little bit, uh, some time to, to, to put in place. Uh, so this brings a little bit the question also, what is domain specific and what is domain general? Uh, I think a, a little bit of that question went into uh, James. Uh, so is there like a specific area of the brain that deals with number such that you kind of wake it up in kids when you teach? Well, a, a lot of the neurosciences has been done in cognitive, cognitive neuroscience, let's say of arithmetic has been done with people in you know, who already went to school, they know how to read and write, they were taught arithmetic. So it's already a, a plastic brain that has been shaped for accommodating and supporting all these activities. So therefore, all of a sudden, then you have like the intraparietal sulcus being very important in supporting, for example, arithmetic functions and calculations. But that doesn't mean that the, the, the intraparietal sulcus uh, has been there forever, uh, waiting to be sort of woken up to do the arithmetic. Um, somehow, for some reason, when humans invented numbers, um, exact quantification, that is, those neural populations seem to be the appropriate ones to be recruited to support that activity. So coming back to the ontogenetic question, it's yes, we, we have a certain uh, recruitment of domain general capacities, uh, but um, and they have some time frames for, for but kids can learn the counting routine and the numbers relatively early, but it's not an easy process. And you have, you know, different elements, cardinality, ordinality, different aspects of numerical activities, not to mention the arithmetic combinations to generate new numbers. Thank you, Dietrich. You, I to, you mind if I comment? Yeah, I so what, what, there's also the zero, which uh, yes. took less, less 2,000 years ago to invent it. Before that, no, nobody knew what a zero was. That's, a, that's an interesting point, Ajit, because uh, zero, according to what we know, is something is a is a type of number that we consider a number today, but it comes from a very different need, which is a, a semiotic a, a form to indicate nothingness or lack of, and and therefore it comes through writing routines, and not to counting. So uh, 
in that sense is coming from the pressures of having to denote something that indicates lack of, which comes from writing now, is a different pressure. And it took a little bit of a while to, to be accepted as an actual number. And then all kinds of interesting mathematics happens when you take it in or you take it out, or you start to develop new things like, you know, factorial operations. And then you define zero factorial to be one because it fits a certain <laughs> certain things in the mathematical you know, system, solve some problems and it's, it's innocuous, so then you adopt it. But there's nothing in nature about uh, telling us that zero factorial is one. It's just an, an interesting uh, definition that solves many problems and it doesn't generate uh, any uh, issues, so we adopt it. But we cannot do the same thing for dividing by zero, for example. So. So zero has all kinds of interesting properties that come out after all these inventions. But yes, it, the origin was driven by a very different need from counting, which came from uh, an issue of notation. If, if I may follow up on that, you made the point uh, talking about people in the Amazon basin and people, many of the original people of Australia not having words beyond, beyond five and having done very well for tens of thousands of years, thank you very much. And I think this highlights the, the kind of, you know, the Eurocentric view of, of naturalists such as Darwin and Wallace, who were, say, how is it that a human mind of somebody who is, you know, not drinking high tea and member of the Royal Society could be pre-adapted to do calculus? But I think the, the big underestimate, and Jim can probably talk to that, is the cognitive needs of surviving as a Hadza or as a Northern Australian or as somebody in, you know, uh, Pilagra or some, somebody in the Amazon. And I think all of us, because we are products of the enumerated, you know, writing, notating societies, we're virtually incapable of imagining what these cognitive needs are. And I think they're way more, way, way more higher than we would naively guess yeah. in absence of numbers. But what is interesting is that all these cultures have in one way or another natural quantifiers terms like many, few, several, a lot, and then, you know, slangish one like gazillion and tons and things like that. And those are the ones we actually use and they're incredibly useful. And all these cultures, you know, Hadza or, uh, you know, Aboriginal Australians, whatever have them, and they seem to be pretty good for, for what they, we, we need to do for thousands of years. Yes, Jim? That's certainly my experience in, in Central Australia. So in an narrative system, counts go up to five and they're expressed as one, two, three, two plus two, two plus three. And then it goes to many mm -hmm. and that's it. And that seems to suit fairly well. So I'm, in situations where we're out hunting, um, distinguishing between six or eight individuals doesn't seem to me to make any difference. And it's, and informants or co-actors, don't seem like they pay much attention to to that either. It's a lot or many, and that's it. One or two, that's a difference. Right. But in the sense of Dietrich's point, as long as the co-actors all get that it's many, <laughs> you yes. get the results. <laughs> Excellent. Um, we have a really basic one that is very difficult to answer for Carol. Um, what genetic differences are there between chimpanzees and bonobos? And I'm happy to try to be a backup. <laughs> between chimpanzees and bonobos? Yeah. What, what are your favorite genetic differences you know of that would the first things you would mention? 
Between us and chimpanzees and bonobos? No, between the two, our two closest living uh, uh, relatives, bonobos and chimpanzees. Very, very similar genetically. I think the, the biggest difference I know of is the Y chromosome. Yeah. That has undergone, it's famous for evolving very rapidly and it looks radically different between the two species. But other than that, I agree, very, very similar. similar. Having had just one million years to uh, diverge. Yeah. Then I have a question for Jim Rilling. Uh, are there significant differences in arcuate fasciculi in adult humans? And do they still correlate with linguistic task performance? In other words, could I get rid of my Swiss accent if I massaged my arcuate fasciculus? Um, so, there, yeah, there have been studies that have looked at uh, like the myelination status of the arcuate fasciculus in adults and related that to different aspects of linguistic function and have found correlation. So with this technique, diffusion tensor tractography, you can look at uh, white matter integrity, which is believed to reflect uh, mostly myelination status. And so there are some studies in, in adults where you find that that correlates with linguistic abilities. Thank you very much. Um, I have a question, another question for Jim O'Connell here. Uh, do the different norms of sharing between Hadza men and women, big game versus geophytes, generalize to the sharing of other resources and services? I have to think about that for a second. Um, nothing comes to mind immediately. The sharing of plant food, the resources that women collect, tends in, my, in our experience to be pretty focused on individual households. Whereas with, in, with men in general, if they're taking large game, um, the fact that they're acquiring, this is Nick Burton-Jones line of argument, the fact that they're acquiring large game in, in big quantities unpredictably means that this represents an attractive resource that the, the collector can't control. He, he can eat a certain amount, but it's a fraction of, what, of what's actually available. And he's got people coming up who haven't got any. So as, as one might say, the nth bite of that large package is of less utility to that initial collector than it is uh, to, the, to the person who's coming up who has no bites so far. Um, on the other hand, with women's resources, the, the predictability is very high. So a, a woman collecting uh, plant food, especially geophytes, is gonna get plus or minus 10%, the same number every day. And so it's predictable. And any, any woman collector on that day can get the same amount. So there's very little incentive to distribute beyond the individual woman's household. So, so any set of resources that share those respective qualities is likely to be treated in the same way. Um, and Blurton Schoen's argument that resource, the quantities acquired and their predictability on a day-to-day -day basis are what's likely to be uh, accounting for or explaining sharing or redistribution patterns. Thank you very much. I have another question for Dietrich Stout here. Uh, did you see any innovations over the course of your longitudinal study on stone tool making in Papua New Guinea, I presume? Uh, well, I know, so the one I mentioned in my uh, talk was an experimental study that we, we did here. And 
no, um, the uh, I mean, this was they, they were trained for uh, a little under 100 hours and uh, uh, we're, we're just trying to basically achieve some, some basic uh, competence. Um, so there is, uh, uh, I guess, you know, so you can have some some sort of basic innovations. Uh, we did a much shorter study in which uh, uh, people, I wasn't giving them actual verbal instruction. I was just making stone tools in front of them. And a lot of them, uh, I decided to get out of their chairs and do it on the ground, um, which isn't something that I modeled for them. Um, and then they copied from each other. Uh, so that's, I mean, within the scope of a very simple technology, I suppose that that would be, uh, an innovation. Um, but, uh, for anything more sophisticated than that, there's a certain base level of competence that you need. Um, and so this is sort of the interplay between what we think of, sort of conceptual or imaginative processes of invention, but also the, the, the basic perceptual motor ability of the sensory ability and the control to really know the materials you're working with before you can uh, innovate in, in an effective way. Um, so we didn't really uh, observe a lot of that because most of our uh, experimental subjects are just learning. Uh, Thanks very much. Uh, I have another question here for Rafael Nunez. Can we think of higher mathematics as even further along the spectrum, or should we th think of it as a distinct ability? Well, higher mathematics is, again, super recent. <laughs> so now we're really talking about the last couple of hundred years. Uh, a lot of the mathematics, if you think about infinitesimal calculus, that was invented in the 17th century. Uh, if you get into the mathematics you get today, let's say if you count the number of theorems that have been demonstrated, in terms of proofs, if that's a, let's say, a, an indicator of knowledge development, it's exponential, absolutely crazy. And most of it in pure mathematics doesn't have direct applications. So it doesn't apply to the real world. It doesn't, uh, it's just internally looking for some kind of uh, reasons for why certain axioms could be this way or that way. What is interesting is that, uh, for example, you take sexy topics like infinity, for example, you would have these amazing developments at the end of the 19th century, uh, many believing that then there's just the final taming of this crazy concept like infinity in exact terms, uh, only to see now that you have different treatments and different varieties of infinities, many of them mutually inconsistent and so on. I think uh, the idea that mathematics is just developing sort of linearly one thing after the next, uh, it's probably false, I would say. And it's much more like, uh, uh, you know, you develop a conceptual system where you have certain constraints and depending on how you tweak the axioms then you start to have completely different creatures. And then the, uh, the job description of a mathematician is to find out what, to what extent certain axioms, you know, are fruitful for what, to what extent certain things can be uh, understood in terms of foundations of mathematics and so on, but there would be a variety of them. And this has happened actually, even with the concept of number. Uh, so uh, rational numbers, you know, uh, let's say if you take it from the Pythagorean uh, tradition, it would be considered just as ratios of, of counting numbers, so to speak. So we call them natural numbers today, but the path of getting into irrational numbers complex numbers or real numbers, um, and then infinitesimal numbers, each, at each stage, you violate some property of the previous concept. For example, complex numbers, you know, if you take a number to be something like either bigger than zero, smaller than zero, or zero, as Ajit was mentioning, 
Well, that fits a lot of the numbers, but by the time you jump in with complex numbers, then a complex number is neither bigger, smaller, or zero. So you have to give up order all of a sudden. And so you start to create new creatures and then, uh, you know, with new rules and, and giving up certain properties of what you thought were prototypical properties of numbers. So by now, if you really get into the, the technicalities of modern mathematics and number, you have the craziest forms of numbers. Uh, so, and that's open for development, but I don't think there's any linear way in which things are developed. As long as humans have symbolic reference, metaphorical, analogical ways of extending conceptual system and inferential organization, you know, give it a try and you'll have more and more creatures of, uh, and, and more jobs for mathematicians. Thank you. And I've got a, a question for Joe Hacia. Would it be fair to propose that the way humans deal with phytanic acids reveals an adaptation to eating ruminants? That's a, that's a good question. If there was some selective pressure to have increased levels of phytanic acid uh, metabolic capacity, that was something that got me into the field. And it was just a, a limited number of cell lines that I was uh, profiling from the zoological society of San Diego with Ollie Ryder with the frozen zoo. And we, we came up with this uh, higher expression of phi, uh, phi, uh, phi H in the human cell lines. And that really got me down the road of trying to uh, look at, you know, different types of lipids that might be uh, differentially uh, levels in different, in different uh, species. So uh, again, I, I, I can't say that we, I can actually um, uh, that def definitively say something that, that humans have, uh, you know, a, you know, in, a very high capacity to um, to to break down phytanic acid. So I mean, far more, you know, under normal circumstances, you if you have uh, you know an intact genetically intact metabolic system, uh, you you will not overload your system with phytanic acid. It's only when you have this severe impairment that over the course of like a decade you acquire stores in certain tissues that lead to toxicity. Thank you. There's a question for Ajit with regard to the representation of genetic or genomic diversity in modern humans. Uh, do you feel satisfied or, or, or um, confident that we appreciate the, the variation in those CD33 related SIGLEX across human populations? Or would you not be surprised if uh, isolated populations of modern humans somewhere does some very interesting SIGLEC biology we have yet to appreciate? I mean, that's a question for both Nisi and, and Ajit, I, I suppose. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of, the, the, the frequency of these polymorphs can vary greatly between, between cultures and, and populations. I don't know, not enough study yet to know, but okay. there's quite, quite a lot of variation. So there are probably local factors that are selecting, you know, for example, the bacteria that express polysialic acid, E. coli K1 meningococcus, they could, be, they, could, they, they could select against 16 because you get too much inflammation and you die from that instead of killing the bug. So it's really not clear, but there's a lot of variation in these polymorphisms. Thank you. There's a question for Jim Rilling here. Uh, the extension forward to temporal tip suggests the proper name function to the temporal tip in humans. Apes may manage to keep track of a hundred individuals, but humans manage thousands. Do you think there might be something with this far-reaching arcuate fasciculus that 
that reflects our the size of our social networks even in the uh, country with friends 200 kilometers away yeah. well um so yeah I, there's been um you know expansion of that cortex in the ventral lateral part of the temporal lobe and that's involved in in lexical semantics um so uh you know names for objects and so forth so it, it and there's a lot more of that cortex in humans than in chimps so it it makes sense to me that um humans can you know learn the names of, of many many more words than than uh than chimps can um so uh, yeah i think i think that's reflected in in the in the expansion of that cortex Excellent. We, we are almost at the top of the hour. I will, I will just take one question that was directed to me about the ABO, and it's really relevant to, uh, to the current pandemic. Uh, is there evidence for a difference in ABO group and COVID disease severity? It's not straightforward. Uh, several papers have been published, uh, starting with a group in Shenzhen, China, showing that group O individuals were massively underrepresented in the ERs of the hospitals, but only at the beginning of the pandemic. So it looks as if initially, if you lack the two antigens, you can catch incoming virus that is tagged by the people who are B, A, B, or, or a, a blood group. But as the pandemic spreads, that effect goes away. So uh, there are some very interesting reviews written by teams in, in, in France that actually cited on my slides. You can wait until this is up on the, on, 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 um, on the net. Another question was, how do we form antibodies against the blood group we don't have? In the case of ABO, it's very clear that it's, it's linked to the gut microbiota. Many bacteria express short sugar chains on their surfaces, and some of them express those that you don't have. And so you, that's how you start making. So you're born without making the antibodies, and very quickly you start making antibodies against the blood groups you don't have, with, of course, the exception people who are blood group AB do not make any antibodies. And I will now hand over to our other co-director, Margaret Schoeninger, who will wrap up uh, with a few final words. If Margaret is joining us. Yes, she is. I am joining you. you. Thank you, Pascal. Uh, I am speaking of, for all of CARTA, and I want to give a heartfelt thanks for those who made this symposium possible. The speakers, thank you all for very stimulating work and stimulating presentations. I'd like to thank our sponsors and supporters. I'd like to thank the symposia chair, uh, Alyssa and Pascal, and again, all our speakers. I was really struck by these presentations and where they can take us into the future. This is gonna stimulate interest long into the future. And I was so pleased to see that you did not say, we've got the answer to everything because there's so much more to be learned. Uh, I want to thank the audience for attending and the questions. I've been really impressed by the questions that were asked here. I'd also like to acknowledge and thanks to the joint efforts of UCSD-TV, the CARTA team, and to the San Diego Computers Supercomputer Center for the organization that they put together and have been putting together for our last several symposia. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.